We are at Matthew chapter 21. We're at the final week of Jesus. And I said yesterday at the first service, you know, as I was preparing this sermon, I, I just had a, I said to myself, how wonderful would it be if, if we ended the Matthew series chapter 27 on Easter next year, right? But of course we're not, we're ending it on Christmas. Uh, well, that would be such a climatic uh, story, don't you think? Because by, by the way, Matthew chapter 27 is where he was crucified. Resurrected, so that's the Easter story. Um, but it's okay. It's uh, next year. We're studying a fantastic book. I, I look forward to it. But we're on chapter twenty-one, and chapter twenty-one is the beginning of the final week of Jesus's life on earth. Right. So uh, 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 it starts with Jesus entering Jerusalem, starting his final week, and everything in his final week is very intentional. Everything that is written down in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is very intentional. There is something that we can learn because Jesus is, Jesus is cramming, like almost cramming the theology of the world into just one week, teaching his disciples this, teaching the people this, teaching us this and that. So I'm hoping today, I'm going to take a bit of time in the beginning of my sermon to explain a lot of the prophetic implications of Matthew chapter 21. I hope it's going to excite you, but if it doesn't, uh, uh, you have permission, or actually I don't know if you have permission, to doze off just a little bit and then come back in my second part of my sermon uh, uh, after, after 15 minutes. Is that okay? Uh, uh, so I've entitled my sermon, The Donkey and the War Horse, all right? Uh, uh, I love this slide. Oh, it's oh, huge. Oh, wow. It's huge behind me. Uh, Mac team, well done to you. Uh, this is an amazing uh, uh, slide. The donkey and the war horse. What is the difference between a donkey? What is the difference between a war horse? All right? So that's the application part of my sermon, the donkey and the war horse. So I'm going to divide it into two. The prophetic significance, I hope this excites you a bit. I'm going to read from the Old Testament uh, just a little bit to explain to you, to show you how Matthew chapter 21 is really a fulfillment of a lot of Old Testament prophecies, every line in the first 11 verses is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And then, of course, I'm going to explain what is the spiritual implication in our lives. I have three points. What, how can we apply those prophetic uh, uh, fulfillment? Just so you know, there's, there's always something to apply in our spiritual life when it comes to prophecy. Prophecy is not prophecy for prophecy's sake. There is always something for us to apply. Are you with me so far? Is that okay? All right. Prophetic significance, all right? So I hope to take, what's on my watch? 15 minutes, all right? Be with me, stay with me, especially if you're a new visitor and if you're visiting this house, if you feel, what in the world is he talking about? Stay with me. I will get to a, a more applicable portion of my sermon, all right? So for today, we usually get SIB to read, but today I'm just gonna do the reading myself. I'm gonna do a dramatic reading, all right? I did not take theater, it's my module in university, but who knows, it's never too late to learn. So I'm going to do a dramatic reading of Matthew 21. So I'm going to read, and then I'm going to talk, I'm going to read, and I'm going to explain, and then I'm going to close it up with how does this all apply in our lives. Are we ready? We're good to go? Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 to 11. As they approach, now they is Jesus and the disciples and the crowds, okay? So this is the big they. They approach Jerusalem. All right, so Jesus was walking from the north of Israel all the way down to Jerusalem. He passed Jericho, and if you, if you, if you, if you read the, uh, the scriptures a bit more, you will know that the Jericho Pass is where uh, the Good Samaritan parable is from. So they, were, they passed Jericho, and then they landed on 
Bethage, on the Mount of Olives. Now, this is, this is particularly important, all right? So if you forget all the prophetic uh, fulfillment, just remember this, Mount of Olives, that is very, very important. Bethage, on the Mount of Olives. In the, in, in the Gospel of Mark, it does say Jesus came to Bethage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. So if you can imagine, I'm the Mount of Olives, Bethage is just right here, Bethany is just right here. So there is no contradiction in Scripture. It is right, it's just that Matthew chooses to use Bethage instead of Bethany. Why? Because Bethage is another name for the house of unripe figs. Uh, maybe that's why later on Jesus cursed the fig tree, all right? Okay, Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. So just in case we've never been to Israel, and I've never been to Israel, and it's always been my dream to go to Israel. There's so many places I want to I wanna see and I want to visit, right? But um, I did this for you. This is Google Maps, all right? Uh, this is the Mount of Olives. So Mount of Olives means Mountain of Olives. So at back at those times, there are a lot of olive trees, okay? So it's here. Jerusalem is here. That's the Temple of Jerusalem. Of course, this is Google Maps, okay? So back in those times, there was no Dome of the Rock, all right? Uh, that is only in modern times. Uh, so this is the Temple of Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice the, the, the distance. The distance is 1.7 kilometers, again, according to Google Maps. And it takes 30 minutes to walk from the Mount of Olives all the way to the Temple of Jerusalem. So when, the, when Matthew says that Jesus walked from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, uh, don't think that it's five days or one week. It takes 30 minutes, okay? So it is a 30-minute walk, uh, maybe an hour because, you know, he's on a donkey uh, and there were crowds. Uh, so maybe an hour, but it does not take that long to walk from one place uh, uh, back and forth. Now, the geographical location of the Mount of Olives is of particularly importance here. Mount of Olives is on the east of Jerusalem. Just bear that in mind. I'll come back to that. It's on the east of Jerusalem, all right? Are we okay with this slide? We got our bearings. Next slide. That's Mount of Olives. Uh, just to give us a, if you're more visual, this is, this is where it is. So the two rabbis are standing on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is one kilometer high. So it is not that, uh, uh, not that, not that, not, not, not that of a small mountain. It's quite a significant mountain. It's one kilometer up. Uh, so that's the rabbi. They're standing on the Mount of Olives and they're overlooking Jerusalem. So that's the Dome of the Rock. This is the temple, supposedly where the Temple of uh, Solomon is supposed to be. So they're looking over Jerusalem. Uh, and it's interesting to note that I can only imagine Jesus. Now, I, I say imagine because it's not written in Scripture. But I imagine Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives interceding for Jerusalem. You're on, a, you're on a mountaintop and you're interceding for the city that you love. You're interceding for the city that you've called the Israelites from Egypt all the way back and gave them the promised land, Jerusalem, all right? But why is Mount of Olives so important? The importance lies in Old Testament prophecy. And I'm going to read two places where it, it, it shows importance. The first is Ezekiel 43, 1 to 5. Then the man brought me, me being Ezekiel, the man being an angel, the man brought me, Ezekiel, to the gate facing east. And I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters and the land was radiant with his glory. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Where was the place that Jesus went immediately after entering Jerusalem? The temple. Who are we? 
the temple of the Holy Spirit, all right? So I want you to see with physical eyes that Jesus actually physically walked into the temple, but also see with spiritual eyes that nowadays there's no longer a physical temple because we become that temple. So imagine God saying, I'm your, my glory, God's glory is going to fill the temple. We, that temple. And in those times, back, back in the days, after the Babylonian capture, it was, it, it's, it's a great legend and a great myth that everybody who conquered Jerusalem would wall off the eastern gate of Jerusalem, would brick it up. Nobody is allowed to enter Jerusalem from the eastern gate. Why? Because back in those times, they believed that anyone who entered through the eastern gate is the Messiah because they believed in Old Testament prophecy. That's why it's the Eastern Gate. But that is not as exciting as Zechariah. Zechariah is like one of my Old Testament favorite books. Please read it after this. I hope I excite you enough. Please go read Zechariah. Only 14 chapters, okay? Not too long. But if you're, if you're excited enough to read Zechariah, read the other three books that comes along with it. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, okay? These are the four books that if you really, really exegete the four books, you get a holistic understanding of who Jesus is and the foreshadowing of Jesus. Okay, have I promoted the Old Testament enough? If you have done with the four books, please read the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus. I'm just kidding. Uh, okay, uh, read, 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 read Zechariah. But let me read Zechariah for you. Where, where am I? Oh, there we go. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem. All right? So this is, there is a two-stage two prophetic fulfillment. All right? The first stage is when Jesus actually walked into Jerusalem. The second stage will be when Jesus comes again. All right, on the second day. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem. Now, this is scary. When your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations. I will gather Babylon. I will gather Syria. I will gather, uh, I will gather the Greeks. I will gather Romans. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem. Not to bless it, but to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile. That's why we have the diaspora. But the rest of the people will not be taken from the city and they would remain in, in, in Israel, all right? But this is, this is the most exciting part. Then, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations on our behalf as he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. You will flee by the mountain valley. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Do you see the significance of why Jesus used the Mount of Olives as a staging area before he goes into Jerusalem? Imagine if you're a war general, you're a commander-in-chief, you're a general. You always need a staging area to go and conquer a place. Whether you want to stage your army, whether you want to stage your battleships, or whether you want to stage your carriers, you need some place to stage to, 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 so that your man who's injured can come back to the staging area to be healed, or so that from the staging area, you devise your strategies and battle plan to attack the city. And Mount of Olives is the staging area for Jesus when he is going to invade Jerusalem. But I want us now to see that the prophetic fulfillment of this is not in the physical, but in the spiritual. That God, the Lord of hosts, Yeshua Sabaoth, he's coming on with his armies, angelic armies, standing on the Mount of Olives, facing east of Jerusalem. And he's looking at Jerusalem, and he's coming in to conquer the city, not physically, but spiritually. It is just like our lives. 
Just imagine our lives, that we are the temple of Jerusalem, our walls, that we are invaded from all sides, that uh, the armies, uh, the enemies, our flesh, our temptation, uh, maybe even Satan, if you want to go that far, uh, it's coming up against you. The battle bow has been strung. The chariots have been called. The war horses have been ridden, and they're coming up against you. And the Lord of hosts this morning is standing to your east on your Mount of Olives, saying, I am overlooking your life and I'm waiting to enter Jerusalem to fight on your behalf. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. I will end uh, the sermon with this. Amen, church? You're with me? Let's come back to Matthew. Can we come back to Matthew? So now do you see how important it is that Matthew, remember when I said everything is intentional? This is intentional. He didn't need to tell you where Jesus was staging his entry, but he did because it's intentional. Okay, next. Sorry, I saw it 15 minutes. I've taken 10 on the first verse. <laughs> I will move along, okay? Saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you would find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. And he, said, he will send them right away. It's interesting. Jesus sent his disciples, like a general sending his army. We are his army, right? The general says, go. Go and get a donkey for me. Untie that donkey for me. And, and uh, find some random person with a donkey and untie that donkey and bring it to me. And the person says, yes, I will do it. It's just like our lives, right? Are we, are we the kind of Christians that, that when God says go, we will go without question? There was, the disciples never questioned Jesus. We would just say, okay, you ask me to go, I'll go. Are we that kind of Christians? Are we also the kind of Christians that if, 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 if another Christian comes up to us and say, God needs this from you, and you're going to say, Yes, okay. This donkey doesn't belong to me anyways. This donkey belongs to God. So if you want to use it, God, use it by all means. Are we that kind of Christians? Or are we kind of Christians that says, I will only go if I hear a booming voice from heaven, all right? The earth will split into two, and I know that I see a vision from God. Then only I believe that God is asking me to go, and I will not give up my possessions until I see all these visions, all right? Okay, that's not my sermon, but that's... That's the scripture. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. What was spoken through the prophet? Say to daughter Zion. Now, daughter Zion. Why daughter? Daughter means the inhabitants of Israel. What is Zion? Zion is Israel, okay? So, say to the inhabitants of Israel, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here, I'm going to do a little bit. I'm not going to talk so much about this because I did two years ago in my sermon, Your King Has Come. I spoke on Zechariah 9. So if, you, if you're interested to know the other prophetic things and how it applies to our lives, please go back to this sermon. Uh, it's on YouTube, okay? But other than that, let me read Zechariah 9 just a little bit. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. This is where I got my sermon title. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Interesting. Just... Just if you read this too, and without any theological uh, background, you would be able to see, you mean God, the king, is going to come on a donkey to fight the chariots, the war horses, and the battle bow? How in the world is that possible? I'll explain. And that's why I got my title, The Donkey and the War Horse. Are we still okay, SMCC? Have I lost any one of you? Have I lost? 
Should I, should I say a little joke to, to wake everybody up? No? Okay, no, I, I did not prepare one. So even if you say yes, I, I, I don't think I will. Um, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt placed on their, and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Now, cloaks back in, the, uh, uh, back in Jewish culture just means I give you my cloak, I give you honour, I give you prestige, uh, I treat you as royalty. That's why they give their cloaks. Uh, uh, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches. Now, this cut branches signifies that I welcome you in, but I welcome you in with a... Uh, uh, intention. The intention is nationalism, all right? So when, whenever you see Jews waving palm branches, it always means nationalism. Fight for my country, fight for, for, for Israel, fight for Jewish rights, all right? So that's why Matthew specifically say, while others cut branches or palms from the trees and spread them on the road. That's the intention of the crowd. We okay? The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who come in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, what does Hosanna mean? We sing Hosanna all the time, right? But in their context, Hosanna means, Oh, save me. It's Hosanna in Hebrew. The, the people are crying, God, King, King, Son of David, Hosanna, Hosanna, save me, save me. Blessed is he who come in the name of the Lord. Interestingly, in the whole of the Old Testament, you would always see Hosanna, King David, Hosanna, King Solomon, because you're asking a king to save me. But in this context, it was written, Hosanna in the highest heaven. They recognize Jesus as God in the highest heaven. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, God Almighty, save me. Now, they're not even invoking the, the authority of a humanly king. They're invoking the authority of a heavenly king, a godly king, or God himself. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who in the world is this man on a donkey? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let me not stop here. I'm going to quickly go through the next two parables and try to let you see uh, uh, what, what did Jesus do immediately after entering Jerusalem. He did this. We all know the story, so I'm not going to go line by line. He entered the temple immediately after Jerusalem. He entered the temple and he didn't pray. He didn't say, well done, high priest, for being so faithful in looking after the temple all these years until here I am, the king. He didn't say any of that. He entered the temple and then he chased people out and said, my house is not a den of robbers. My house is a house of prayer. God's house will always be a house of prayer and God would always be zealous for his house. He did that, uh, uh, he healed people and then he argued with the Pharisees straight after because the Pharisees are like, in whose authority are you coming in to cleanse the temple? And Jesus said, if you don't know, if you don't know whose authority I come by, I'm not gonna tell you because if you're spiritually blind, you're spiritually blind already. Right? So I'm hoping, church, that we're going to open our spiritual eyes this morning. Is that okay? So after he cleansed the temple, he leaves the temple and he goes back to a place called Bethany. Bethany is a place where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Bethany. And he saw a fig tree by the road. He went up to it but found nothing except leaves and he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. How odd. What in the world is going on? Why did Matthew put... Jesus entering the Jerusalem on a donkey, and then Jesus cleansing the temple, and then Jesus cursing the fig tree. What has this all got to do with each other? Then the disciples saw this and they were amazed. How did the fig tree die so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, <clears throat> this will be the closing of my sermon later on. Not now. 
<laughs> Maybe some of you are like, oh, really? Now? That's great. Uh, I'm hungry. Um, Truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. What an answer to a question. Jesus, how did this fig tree die so quickly? Jesus said, if you believe and have no doubt and have all the faith in the world, you will receive everything you ask for in prayer. What does, what does the, the death of the fig tree got to do with, with, with prayer? I'm done with my prophetic fulfillment, all right? Did I lose anybody of you? Did I lose? We're still good? All right, I want to go into the spiritual implications. What does this mean for us? What does it really mean for us that Jesus is, is prophetically standing on the Mount of Olives? What does it mean that Jesus cleansed the temple? What does it mean that Jesus came on a donkey? What does it mean that Jesus say, ask and you will receive anything in prayer? The spiritual implications. Donkey and a war horse. Here we go. God's plans versus our plans. Our plans are like a war horse, but God's plans will always be like a donkey. What are our plans? See, what are the plans of the crowd when Jesus entered the city? Hoshana, Hoshana, save me, King of, of Israel. Save me, Son of David, because we are being brutalized by the Romans. We are being slaved by the Romans. We are like slaves to this uh, uh, pagan nation that puts, uh, 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 that, that puts, let me filter my words, that puts a lot of other things, unclean things on the temple altar. We are enslaved and we are enraged. Save us, O King. But God says, I will save you but not with a war horse. I will not come into the city of Jerusalem with a war horse and with power and strength and might and get rid of the Romans and get rid of your uh, captors. I will not come on a war horse. I come on a donkey. God's plans versus our plans. Do you know that God is a sovereign God? Do you know he's a big God? Do you know he created the universe? He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He breathed life into you. If he says you are not living, you will not live. If he says you will live, you will live. He is that big of a God. And I want to say to all of us this morning, including myself, that God is under no obligation to answer a prayer that does not align with his plans. Can I say that again? God is under no obligation. The master of the universe, the master and the Lord of all, God Almighty is under no obligation to answer a prayer that does not align with his plans. And he would catch you off guard and he would still say, I will still save you, but I will save you with a bigger picture in mind. You see, we always see on a small scale picture, God saved me from, from my problems. God saved me from my captors. God saved me from, from my issues. But God is saying, I see a bigger picture here. I would save you from your soul. I would save you in your spiritual life. I would save you uh, uh, from all the soulish struggles that you're going through. I will still come and save you, but it is not your expectations that I will save you on. It is going to be God's expectations, His plans to save you and how He wants to save you. But what has it got to do with this? Watch our prayers. How do we pray to this God Almighty, right? If you could just reflect back on your prayers, you will be able to tell. God, I want this. I always want this. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with requesting things from God. 
all right? Please do ask. There's nothing wrong with petitioning God for things. Please do ask. But if that's all your prayer life, then can I just invite you to increase your prayer life to something else? We're always praying, God, I want this job. Oh, this job is great for me. Oh, I want this promotion because this promotion gives me more money. And then God you know, re- uh, will ask you, what do you want to do with all the more money? And, and it's never for the kingdom of God. It's always to get an iPhone 11. It's always to uh, uh, get something that would please yourself, right? But I want more money, right? And God says, will you be a little bit more generous uh, to, uh, for, for during missions weekend, for example, or bless weekend? Would you, would you bless people now that you've got the promotion? And, and, and it's always difficult for us to give a bit more once we've had a bit more. But that's our prayer. We always want something more, especially when we pray for a, a, a relationship. I don't know how many young adults are in this house, so I'm, I'm assuming all of you are married, but if you just, just go back 30, 40 years, or 20 years, oh, sorry, 10 years for some of you, okay? Go back 10 years, I don't know how long you've been married, right? And you, we're always praying for a spouse, and we're always saying, God, I, I want a wife that loves you more than she loves me, right? We pray that before we get the spouse. And then after the spouse, you're like, excuse me, God, why is she always at the prayer altars? I don't understand, right? But you prayed it into happy, you prayed for it, right? Um, uh, uh, God gives me, I, by the way, this is not a personal attack, all right? I'm walking because I'm thinking and I'm, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to inspire me or for an example, right? We're always praying for a spouse. God, give me the spouse that would do my laundry, that would cook for me. I want a spouse that has the character of like my mother. She would look after me. She would cook and she would buy my clothing for me. She would wash my clothing and she would iron them so that I can get up uh, in the morning. But Lord, please, oh God, do not give me a spouse that look like my mother. Just act like my mother, not look like my <laughs> I'm just kidding, right? I'm just kidding. No offense to all the mothers here, including my own, right? Um, but we will always pray for something that we want. And I, just wanna, I just want to propose to you, what if God does not give you anything that you want? Because He knows it's not going to be good for you. He has every right to say, I will save you. I would give you what you want, but on His terms and conditions. And it would always be a better plan for you. We just cannot see it yet. Are we going to be like the crowds? Hoshana, Hoshana, son of David. Hoshana, Hoshana in the highest. Come in and save us from the Roman captors. One week later, when they realize that Jesus is not going to save them and Jesus is going to die on the cross, they say, crucify him. Are we going to be exactly the same? We say, God, God, heal me. God, God, give me uh, uh, more providence. God, God, give me this, give me that. And the moment one week later when you realize that God is not going to fulfill any of your prayers, you say, crucify you, God. Get lost. What kind of God is this that the SIBKL is preaching? What kind of God do they, these Christians believe in? You know, young adults, again, I don't know how many young adults in this house, but if you are young adults, I know, you know, I know so many young adults that they were serving, they were fervent, that they love God, and 10 years later, they're nowhere in church, and they profess to be atheists, I still love them, I still talk to them. They, say, they, they profess to be agnostic. And I say, what happened? And it's always because God never answered a prayer that they prayed for. It's always that way. God, I, I want my, 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 my parents to stop abusing me. And it never happened. And I say, this is, a, this is a God with no power. This is a God who does not love me. This is a God who does not want to save me. What if God has a different plan for you? Do you know? And then we, we, we Christians love the quote, but you said, God, If we have faith and do not doubt, we can say to the mountains, be moved and it will be moved. You said, God, if we we believe 
And do not doubt, we will receive everything in prayer. That's what you said, God. I'm just, I'm just here with all faith and no doubt, but you're still not answering my prayers. Can I just add a clause to it? Uh, implied clause? The implied clause is, yes. If you have faith and do not doubt, and if your plans align to His plans, then only He would answer every single prayer that you have. He has no obligation to answer a prayer that fulfills the desires of our flesh because it's going to be bad for us. It's, he, we don't know it because we think it's going to be good for us, but He knows it, and He's a loving God, and He knows the future. He knows how if He fulfills the fleshly desires, we are not only going to scorn Him, we're going to turn our backs on Him, and that is what He don't want. And sometimes things in our lives happen because our plans don't match up to His plans, and we are frustrated. We're angry at God. We're even angry at the church I came to SIBKL to be fed on the Word, and they asked me to go to Kuching for a rally. What in the world's going on here? Right? I, I, I came to SIBKL to be fed on the Word because I heard this is a, it's a Word church, but now they're asking me to serve in the ministry. Now they're asking me to serve in cell, go to cell. I had to give up more time. What is going on here? Your plans don't match up with God's plans, and you get angry at the church. You get angry at God. And can I just say, if that is you, if, if that is you, can I just invite you to come back and pray the Mary's prayer? if we ever dare pray the Mary's prayer. Be it unto me according to your will, whatever it may be. Have we ever prayed that prayer? Because it's not an easy prayer to, to pray. Because that prayer relinquishes all control from our hands and put it on God. And we might not like what God tells us to do because we always have that fear that if we ever do pray that prayer, God is gonna, oh, God is gonna ask me to work for SIVKL full time. I'm not ready for that. I'm not, you know, uh, God is going to ask me to go to Myanmar on missions. I'm not ready for that. Don't worry about that. If, if God knows you from the inside out and if you trust Him 100% and if you think that His plans for, for you are good, not to harm you, then honestly, we would have no problems praying. Be it unto me, God, according to your will. Oh, but God, if I pray that prayer, you're going to ask me to uh, uh, give promotion to my colleague and I will have to then answer to my colleague. I've been in this company for 10 years, God. I deserve that promotion. I've worked harder, God. I worked every day until 10, 10 o'clock at night. I deserve that promotion. Not my colleague. He's a younger person. He came in. He took my job. He's got more skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I deserve it, God. And if you pray that prayer, he might just put you subservient to the younger man. And we are afraid to pray that prayer. But maybe, just maybe, it will be good for us. Just like Jesus, he has no obligation to free Israel from the Roman captive. But instead, he sees the bigger picture. He frees us in our souls. And in the spiritual realm, he fights for us. Can I just implore that we look at our prayer life, look at the plans that we have for ourselves and say, God, be it unto me according to your will. If we dare pray that prayer. Second point, God's peace versus our peace. First point, God's plan versus our plan. Second point, God's peace versus our peace. What does a donkey symbolize? Peace. That's a donkey. Do you know that in Jewish literature, if a king comes to a city riding on a horse, you know that that king is asking for war. But if a king comes to a city riding on a donkey, you know He's asking for peace. But how do I know this? 
there's two instances in the Old Testament that a king of Israel rides into the city on a donkey saying, I come in peace. Shalom, shalom, Yerushalayim. Shalom, peace be to you, Jerusalem. Two, twice. Once, King David. King, if you remember King David, go back and read Second uh, uh, Samuel, all right? Let's just say 1 to 20, all right? Figure it out where I get it from, all right? Read 1 to 20. <laughs> uh, reading assignment, I'll come. Go back. King David, uh, if you know the story, Absalom, his son, revolted against the father in, uh, for the throne. So I want the throne. No, father, you cannot get the throne. I want the throne. So he was arguing and he rallied a lot of people behind him because he was the tall one. He was the handsome one. He was the eloquent one, right? So everybody wanted to follow Absalom. Even the whole Jerusalem wanted to follow Absalom. And King David comes in. He battles his son, Absalom. He wins the battles and he comes back to Jerusalem instead of a horse, but he rides on a donkey because he wants to tell Jerusalem, his beloved city, I know that you have revolted against me. I know you did a coup d'etat against me. I know that you betrayed me as your rightful king, as your God-appointed king. But yet, I'm still coming into your city on a donkey because I want peace with you, not war. The second instance, King Solomon, First uh, Kings 1 to chapter 35. Go back and read, figure out where I got it from, right? Uh, king Solomon, when King David died, oh, I give that away, yes, chapter 33. When King David died, uh, uh, um, all his sons were vying for the, for the throne, right? All his sons were vying for the crown. This son wanted to be king. That son wanted to be king. Everybody wanted to be king, uh, uh, except Solomon, who is the youngest, the son of Bathsheba. And King David called him in and said, Solomon, I appoint you as king. But the brothers did not know that. Nobody knew that, only Solomon and King David. And Solomon rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why? Because he wants to tell his brothers, I know that you are vying for the throne and I know we're supposed to be enemies, but I did not come to make war with you. I come to make peace. It is the same with Jesus. He comes riding on a donkey. He's saying, church, church, people, people, Israel, Israel, as I be kale, as I be kale, I know that you have once turned your back on me. I know that you have scorned me. I know that uh, uh, you forget to worship me from time to time. I know that you forget to pray. I know that you forget to spend time with me. And I know that maybe at some point of your life, you have hated God. You've been angry at God. I know. But I'm still riding to you, not on a war horse, not to wage war with you, but on a donkey to make peace with you. Will you open up your gates to receive the King of glory into your life? He wants peace. But then you ask, what in the world does peace got to do with this? God first rides, you're telling me that God's riding with, with the peace sign on cross his head onto Jerusalem and the next two things he did, is, is this the God of peace? He came into the temple, he trashes the temple, he scolds everybody and then without any reconciliation, he just leaves, all right, like a Korean drama, all right, he just leaves. And then he goes back to Bethany, he sees the fig tree, as if in, in, in built up anger, he curses the fig tree. Like, what kind of God of peace is this? You know, I don't, if this is the God of peace, I don't want this God of peace. But let me explain to you the difference. See, Jesus is interested in making peace between me and him, between mankind and God, because Jesus is here to bring reconciliation to the Father. Jesus is here to bring, forgive the big words, sub, is to be a substitutionary atonement on our behalf for the Father. Jesus is here to die and to take the wages of our sin on our behalf to the Father. He's here to make peace between us and the Father. And what has it got to do with the temple? 
Jesus will always come into the temple of the Holy Spirit, our temple, the glory of God that resides in this temple, and He would always look for the thing that stands between you and the peace of God. And He would always spiritually with His armies come in to battle whatever that is standing between you and the peace of God. Do you know that? He's not fighting you because He loves you. He's fighting the things that stands in the way between you and receiving the full peace of God. Now, what does that mean? See, if I, if I want to have peace with... Oh, I, I forgot to say this at the first service. My wife and I are totally fine. I know I use a lot of wife examples uh, uh, for this weekend, uh, and some at the first service asking, are you okay with Kim? I'm like, I'm totally okay with Kim, all right? There's no problem. Uh, she did not get offended, and she knows it's a joke. So it's, 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 it's a joke. But if I want to have peace in my home, in my marriage, there are certain things that got to be rooted out of my life, and there are certain lifestyles that I cannot do while I'm a married man and a single man. For example, as a single man, I can check out a girl, I can text her, I can talk to her flirtatiously, I can ask her out for a drink. But if I'm a married man, I cannot do any of those because the moment I do it, I break the peace between me and my wife. What stands between the peace in my marriage? My flirtatious behavior with other women. What stands between you and the peace of God? What is it that stands between the you and the peace of God? I don't know. And, and that's why it was hard for me to craft this sermon because I don't have a come home, take home point for you to say, this is it. Because at the end of the day, I cannot pray and prophesy over a thousand people. Only the Holy Spirit can. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will speak to you even right now. What is it that stands between you and the peace of God? Is it, is it, your, is it your corrupt behavior? Whatever it may be, is it maybe, maybe uh, as a Christian, you say, oh, I, I, I've served the Lord so much. I've sacrificed for the Lord so much. I've sacrificed, I've sacrificed. Why isn't the Lord answering my prayer? Maybe God is saying to you, I demand mercy, not sacrifice. Matthew chapter 10, right? Maybe you're saying, God, but I pray. I pray all the time. I attend all the prayer altars. I do all the corporate altars. Maybe, that's great. Please continue doing that. But maybe Matthew chapter five, God is saying, but when you pray, I also want you to pray behind closed doors. Close your doors because that prayer is between you and God. It's an intimate moment between you and God. And I want to see your heart when nobody is watching you when you pray. Only you and God. Maybe when you fast, I say, I, God, I did the 40 days fast. I did everything religiously. I did everything by the book. I read everything that NECF has told me to read. I read everything, but why is there no breakthrough in my life? And I'm saying, please continue to do so. But maybe Matthew chapter 5, God is saying, but when you fast, don't go around boasting about it. I am such a good Christian because I'm fasting. You are such a bad Christian because you're not fasting. Don't do that. God is saying, when you fast, do it in quiet solidarity because it's between, again, you and God. Maybe these are the things that God is trying to root out of your life, that God is waging war with. God is still a war horse spiritually. He's going to spiritually come into our lives to root out the things that He does not like. Maybe God is saying, oh, you've got many enemies. I'm calling you to love your enemies. I'm calling you to forgive those even though they do not deserve your forgiveness and will never ask for it. I'm still asking you to forgive those. Because if you don't forgive others, it's going to be very difficult for God to forgive you. It's a spiritual principle. And maybe that's the thing that God is coming into our lives to wage war with. 
your bitterness, your anger, your, your religious hypocrisy. Maybe He's coming into our lives to, to root out all our unforgiveness or our gossip or our slander, all our fleshly desires for adultery, all our fleshly desires to hate those who mock us, hate those who scorn us, all our fleshly desires to do whatever it takes in the workplace to get ahead. Even if it means stepping on every Christian and non-Christian in the workplace, I just want to get ahead. Maybe that is what God is saying to you, coming into your lives to wage war against things that stand between you and the peace of God. And sometimes we wonder, God, why am I not experiencing peace? Maybe it's this. Maybe he's cleansing the temple. But at the end of the day, after 20 years, after 30 years of Jesus trying to cleanse the temple, if all we have are leaves and we have no fruit, God is saying, hey, I've been trying to teach you patience for 10 years. Where's the fruit of patience? I've been trying to teach you gentleness for 10 years. Where's the fruit of gentleness? I've been trying to teach you love for 10 years. Where's the fruit of love? And after a long period of time where His kindness leads us to repentance, but we, He has been so kind and we have been so unrepentant, God is, will look at us and say, like the fig tree, you bear no fruit. I have no choice but to cut you off and there'll be gnashing of teeth. No choice because you are unrepentant. Your heart is calloused. Your heart is hardened. And no matter I send a host of angels, I can send my Holy Spirit, nothing would change your life. God is saying, there is no fruit in your life. So can I just implore once more, can we just look at God and say, God, what is the one thing that I need to change so that I can experience the, the peace of God, so that I know that I'm right with you, I'm on the right track with you, I'm not asking me, Isaac, I'm not asking us to be perfect right now. I'm just asking us to submit our deepest, darkest secret to God and says, God, will you work on it? Will you work on it? If it takes me 10 years, please do not curse me like the fig tree. Will you work on me? Will you be patient with me? And I guarantee you, he's a good father. He will. He's a patient father because again, his patience leads us to repentance. His kindness leads us to repentance. God's peace versus our version of peace. Which one do you want? What's our version of peace? God, come in. Remove all the obstacles in my way. Remove all the problems in my way so that I can experience peace. Lord God, my wife is nagging me at home. Will you come into my family and remove my wife from me? and that she sleeps next door. Will you please, Lord God, Lord God, I'm not getting anywhere in my workplace because people are better than me. Will you come into my office and remove all my colleagues so that I will be the next CEO? Lord God, there is a guy in my cell that is the most difficult guy in the entire universe and he's disrupting my cell life. God, restore the peace in my cell and remove that guy from my cell. I know, Lord God, you're asking Pastor Isaac, the connect pastor, to connect him to another zone. Will you please? <laughs> Email Pastor Isaac, right? Would you please? That's our version of peace. But God is saying, no, 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 no. My version of peace is I'm going to come in into your cell. I will give you peace but I'm going to change your heart, break my heart for what breaks yours. I will change your heart to love this person who you deem so unlovable. I'm gonna wage war against what is in your heart. God is saying, I'm gonna come into your home and I'm gonna wage war against 
against something that you have against your wife. I'm going to wage war against it. I'm going to restore the peace in your marriage. I'm going to come into your office and I'm going to wage war against your competitiveness, against your insecurity, against your low self-esteem, and I'm going to restore that peace in your heart. Now that's God's peace. That's not His version, uh, uh, our version of peace. That is His version of peace. Will we open up our hearts to sing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest? Come into my heart and change me first before you change everybody else. Which leads me to my last point. God's power versus our power. All of us want power, don't we? And I'm not talking about power to dominate the business market globally, although I'm sure some of us will want that. I'm not talking about power to be uh, the, the, the most fierce politician or the most powerful man on earth. I'm sure some of us will still want that. But let's come down to earth. A lot of us want power where? In the home, right? Don't we? We tell our children, go clean the dishes. And they'll say, yes, Father. Immediately I will go because you asked me to. That's the power we want, don't we? Right? That's the power we want in the house. We'll say to our, sorry, I'm using a lot of men examples because obviously I'm a man, all right? My wife will give you more female examples. So bear with me, females in the house. You know, as men, how, how do we want power over our wives? We say, wife, if you could only look like Scarlett Johansson, I would be a happy man. And she does. It, it, husband, if that is your wish, I will obey you unquestioningly. That is the power we want in our lives. We power we want in our workplace to say, would you go get me a cup of coffee now at your expense? And we say, yes, boss, I will. That's the power we want, don't we? That's the power we want, the command, the influence in our workplace. The, the more money we have, the power we want is we can do something illegal, but we never get caught because we are so rich and so powerful that we can circumvent the law and we'll never get caught. But let me tell you, there is one pair of eyes that is looking at you, one pair of eyes that is always going to look at me that we can never run away from, his pair of eyes. We can cheat men, we can have power over men, but we will never have power over God. That's our version of power. In this story, what is God's version of power? He comes on a donkey in humility and meekness, lowly riding on a donkey. That's power in the spiritual realm. He rides humbly into Jerusalem on a donkey. He carried the cross humbly to Golgotha. He was nailed on that cross, obedient to God, being as humble as anybody has ever been before. And he rose on the third day and he got all spiritual dominion, all power was given to Jesus. All spiritual authority was given to Jesus. And we have that same power in us. But we can only activate that power, not by the strength of the war horse, but by the humility of a donkey. That we gain power when we bend our knees and pray. We gain power when we say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Save me, O God, because I cannot save myself. I need you to come into my life to intervene for me. God, will you help me? And whatever you say, I will do. God, will you beat onto me according to your will? I am but a humble servant. I am but a humble son of the house. Beat onto me according to your will. The way to power is humility. Are we humble enough to pray? Can we be humble enough to pray? 
come for our corporate prayers, but also pray at home, behind closed doors, in the dark when nobody sees you? Will we be humble enough to pray for our families, for our wives, husbands, for our wives or wives to the husbands, either ways, for our children? Will we be humble enough to pray for the church, our church? And I know a lot of us see, oh, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with this. There's something wrong with this. I have to, I am called by God to tell the senior pastor what is wrong with this church. Yeah, I'm sure. Please go ahead if you want to and it's really convicted by God. But can I just ask you, instead of always finding the wrong, why don't we just pray for the church? This is still God's house. This is not my house. This is God's house. Would you just pray for the nation? Just in case praying for self is too small a task. Can we pray? Because prayer unlocks the key to humility. Humility unlocks the key to peace. And peace unlocks the key to His plans in your life. And I pray today that all of us here will ultimately fulfill the plans that God has for you when you were born. It is never too late. You are never too old to fulfill God's destiny for you, to fulfill God's purpose for you. And I pray that you will always get there before you see the Lord again. In my closing, can I just ask all of us, since I'm talking a lot about prayer this morning, can I just invite all of us to say a prayer for ourselves and ask God, what is it, Holy Spirit, that you have convicted me this morning that I need to change in my life? What are the plans that I've made for my family I've structured it so well. I've got a 25-year plan for my family. But today, I want to give it all to you. I want to surrender it all to you and say, God, let your will be done, not mine. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can we just ask God, what is it in our lives that God wants to root out in the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's saying this is something that does not please the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves Him. And God is saying, I want to give you that peace, but I also come as a war horse to wage war against everything that would stand in the way between your peace and God's heart. Thank you, Jesus. Will you just speak to us, Holy Spirit, this morning? Will you just convict us this morning? We don't want to leave this place the same. We want to be as humble as a donkey and I say, God, save me. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to give you a moment to just be with God. did convict you on something, on any account, I would love to pray for you and pray with you. And if you just take a stand of faith, wherever you are in this sanctuary, if that is you and you're convicted that there is something that you need to change and it doesn't matter what it is, can I just invite you to stand as an act of faith to say, God, here I am. I want your plans to be my plans. I want your peace to be my peace. And I want your power to be my power. On the count of three, will you stand? One, two, three. Anywhere in this sanctuary. And only, it's only going to be between you and God. 
I know so many young adults struggling with pornography. I cannot tell you the amount of time I've spent counseling young adults struggling with pornography. And if you're that young adult in this place, nobody knows who you are, you can just stand without feeling ashamed. And God wants to root out that problem that is plaguing so many youths and young adults in the church. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Counseling so many young married couples struggling in their marriage because they cannot see eye to eye. The expectations of each other do not meet. And I can just invite you on behalf of your spouse to stand and say, maybe God is doing something in your life instead of your spouse first. Thank you, Jesus. I've also been praying for so many people with work problems. It may be a very bad economy, but I just wanna pray that God will come through to you in your financial providence for your family and that you will get work and the work will be good for you. And that is exactly where God wants you to be. That is exactly where God has His plans for you. Thank you, Jesus. Father God, we, we are mere humans that we have so many issues and so many problems that we have a tendency to look at them from a very myopic point of view, from a very selfish point of view. But I pray today, Father God, give us a God point of view. Give us a spiritual point of view that you are standing on Mount Zion to everybody who's standing. God is standing on Mount Zion. To your east, He is the Lord of hosts. And with His angelic force and with His angelic host, He is coming to fight for your behalf. He's coming to fight on your behalf and He's going to win the battle and He has won that battle on Calvary and He has won that battle for you. If only we would just bow our knees and pray and says, God, I want a full victory. I don't want a partial victory. I want a full victory in my life that I can finally say, I'm free from this addiction. I'm free from this problem. Lord, come into my marriage and help me forgive my ex-spouse who cheated on me. Forgive, Father God, help me. It is not easy, but I need you to help me, Lord Jesus. Help come into my marriage and help me forgive my ex-spouse who used up all my money and left me with nothing. Help me forgive, Father God. Help me forgive the church leader that hurt me. He was supposed to show Christ to me, but he has hurt me or she has hurt me. Help me forgive, Lord God, and help me tonight sleep with the peace of God, knowing that you are watching over my life. Thank you, Father God. And I pray, Father God, that the Holy Spirit will come and convict all of us. The Holy Spirit will do a good work in all of us, that no work that Jesus, you start, will go unfinished. But Father God, you will bring every work to completion, every good thing to completion in our lives, that none of us here will see you again without fulfilling our purpose, that all of us here would understand why you've created me, why you've created us. Thank you, Jesus, Father God. I pray for a breakthrough, a breakthrough in everyone's life, that we will experience the fullness of God, that we will experience the power of God, that we will experience the Hoshana of God, that we will cry to you, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Let our King be lifted up. Hosanna. 
Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Let our King be lifted up, Hosanna. We see it again, Hosanna. as we close I don't know what is it that God is whispering to you all these 10 months that has gone by this year as we started our journey on discipleship in Matthew week after week the word of God has gone forth what is your response you tell me 
Whatever it is in your life, you know it. Believe me, I just came back from Singapore. I heard an excellent exposition of the book of Ezekiel by Efnaboski. He's going to come, I'll bring him next year. He's a Messianic Jew. Awesome. But one thing strikes me. God says something. You better take it seriously. Oh. That's what they say to Israel. Repent. Israel didn't. Judgment came. Same for you, same for me. God is a good God. Understand? He's an awesome God. He wants the best for you and your family. But you have to obey. You have to seek His will. And it's a good thing. Not a bad thing. So can I encourage you? On the strength of the word of God that has been delivered. Seek God's will. Seek His will. Not your plans. How do you know you're in the will of God? You'll have peace. Riding in a donkey. And when you have peace. And you're walking in God's will. The power of God will be with you. I'm going to ask Pastor Isaac to close us in prayer. Thank you, Jesus. Father God, we're all standing before you, your humble servants, your humble son, and your humble daughter. Father God, we ask that you guide us into the plan of God, that we will all always know that we are walking in the plans of God. Let us not turn to the left. Let us not turn to the right, but we will always be walking in that plan of God. And whatever that plan means to us, Father God, help us to overcome our flesh, help us to overcome our temptations, help us, Father God, and give us that peace of God, knowing that we are in your plans. And I pray, Father God, that we would have an experience, that power of God in our lives, power to overcome temptations, power to overcome our flesh, power, Lord Jesus, to speak into the lives of others and tell them how good of a God that we serve. We thank you, Father God. May you release us now, Father God, in your power and in your glory, Lord God. May you watch over us. May you keep us from all harm. May you watch over our life. May the sun, may you, O oh Lord God, be the shade at our right hand. May the sun not harm us by day and the moon not harm us by night. May you watch over our coming and our going, both now and forevermore. We thank you, Jesus. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we say, Amen. Well, let's give God a good clap offering.